Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. As listeners to Global Dispatches know, in many parts of the world, war is a growing threat or a harsh reality. But who are the peacemakers working to change this? This week, we are featuring an episode of The Mediator's Studio Podcast, which offers a glimpse into the normally hidden world of peace diplomacy. In this episode, one of the world's most distinguished conflict mediators, Lakhdar Brahimi, reflects on the hopes and failures of peacemaking in Afghanistan and his search for a peaceful solution to the war in Syria. If you are a regular listener to Global Dispatches, you will no doubt benefit from subscribing to the Mediator's Studio on any major podcast platform. I've posted a link to the Mediator's Studio in the show notes of this episode, and this absolutely fascinating conversation with a legendary diplomat will no doubt inspire you to subscribe to the podcast. So here is an episode of the Mediator's Studio featuring Lakhdar Brahimi. Enjoy! Recognition or not, you have got to keep talking to the Taliban, for God's sake. They are the only force that exists now in the country. Whether you want to vaccinate kids or give food or shelter or water, how can you do it if you don't talk to the Taliban? From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. With me today is the veteran Algerian diplomat, Lakta Brahimi, who after half a century of peacemaking has earned a formidable reputation as one of the preeminent mediators of his generation. Working in conflicts from Afghanistan to Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, South Africa, Haiti, and many more. Lakta Brahimi, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. This is a defining moment in Afghanistan's troubled history. But I'd like to begin in 1997, when you were appointed the UN Secretary General's envoy to Afghanistan. Kabul had fallen to the Taliban the previous year, and the group had established an Islamic emirate that was only recognised by a handful of states. And by the time you arrived, the Northern Alliance formed to resist the Taliban was suffering heavy defeats. Take me back to the moment when you took on the job as UN envoy. What were your expectations? Very low indeed. As you said, Taliban were already controlling well over half of the country. And the uh, Northern Alliance was not an alliance at all. You know, the members of the, that alliance were bickering and sometimes even fighting with one another. So expectations were extremely low to keep the conflict as low as possible and allow the humanitarians and the UN agencies to work. You describe quite a fractured conflict landscape with the Northern Alliance, but 
also with regard to the Taliban, that did you feel that you had an impossible mandate of sorts because the US and other major powers refused to recognize them? And uh, despite the fact that by the end of your your term in 1999, you know, they were in control of, of the government, most of the country, you know, what were you saying to the Security Council and the US uh, about the Taliban? It was a learning period for me at the very beginning. But by the end of those two years, what uh, I saw and I told the Security Council was that you are not really interested in Afghanistan. We were still in that great illusion that the end of the Cold War had created a new situation, that the world was all right, that everything was all right. And if this uh, small, faraway, poor country... You know, if its people want to kill one another, why not? I mean, mm. l- I mean, let them do it. I actually said words to this effect, perhaps in these terms, to the Security Council. And I ended my speech by saying, that's why I'm resigning. Yes. Even in this small country, poor, far away, it will blow in your faces. And it did two years later. Exactly two years later, because that was September 1999. And during your time there, you were trying to engage all of the conflict parties, I assume. And despite the difficulties in in reaching the Taliban, you you did meet three times with with Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban. As a mediator, what did you hope to achieve from, from those meetings with him? One is something that I have been repeating throughout my career. If you want to make peace somewhere, you have got to talk to everybody. You cannot uh, choose your interlocutors. Your interlocutors are the people you know, who are making war and therefore may one day want to make peace. Mm. So you've got to talk to them. You mentioned September 2001 before when that day happened and you saw the Twin Towers fall and and you heard the drumbeat of war afterwards, what was going through your mind? That it would probably be difficult to find a peaceful solution. You know, I think now it has been documented very, very much that uh, there were possibilities of finding a, a solution. But the United States, understandably, their people were extremely angry. The government even more angry. You know, it would have been extremely difficult to stop them from going to war. So the U.S. invades Afghanistan, joins forces with the Northern Alliance, marches on Kabul, overthrows the Taliban. And by then, despite, as you said, there being a limited uh, chances of a peaceful outcome, you know, you take on that drop of U.N. Secretary General's special representative to Afghanistan. And an interim administration is formed as a result of the Bonn Agreement in 2001 and a lawyer Jirga the year afterwards involving prominent Afghans, both of which you facilitated. Later on in 2003, you know, you asked the question, where are the Taliban in a non-paper that you wrote? And should we not find out what they're thinking? Did anyone answer those questions? I'm afraid not amongst the internationals or the Northern Alliance. People have to remember that the Northern Alliance was actually revived by the United States and their allies. They were outside of the country. They were completely defeated, wiped out. They were revived, armed, 
uh, given money, given tanks, given weapons. I think that point is, is important to remember. But in Bonn, they were the strong party, uh, not the only party, but the really strong party. Peace had to be made with them. By the way, people are saying today that Taliban should have been invited to uh, Bonn. No, that's nonsense. Mm. The Taliban have been defeated, routed, uh, killed, thrown out of power in, in Afghanistan. They wouldn't have come to Bonn a few days later. Mm. Uh, that's not the question. question is, once you have had Bonn, you had a project, you had a plan for making peace, then you should have asked, okay, who is who in Afghanistan? Yes. And if you ask who is who, you've got to ask, how about the Taliban? Mm. But we were told by everybody unanimously, the Northern Alliance, Americans, the Russians, the Indians, the Iranians, unanimous, forget about the Taliban. The Taliban mm. don't exist anymore, so don't waste your time wondering where they are. Over there. That is, I think, the big mistake that we have made. Can you recall any of the conversations you had with American officials and others? You know, they clearly were sending this message that this is impossible, they should be excluded. Do you regret not pushing harder on, on some of those subjects, given what's happened? I regret that I didn't push harder for myself, as it mm. were, because I don't think anybody would have listened. Mm. Now, Khalil Zad, the American point man for Afghanistan all these years, who is of Afghan origin himself. Now, I think he tells me that he hears now, as I do, that the Taliban actually had sent a letter to President Karzai, and that Karzai never told him about that letter. Yes. He definitely did not tell me about it either. What I think is that Karzai spoke about this letter to Rumsfeld, who was the defense secretary of the United States. And Rumsfeld must have told him, forget about it, Taliban are gone, finished. Yes. Don't waste your time with that. I heard that what they were saying is that we want guarantees that we will not be interfered with and we just want to go back to our villages. Mm. I also heard that they were offering to negotiate, if not to surrender, at least some kind of peace which would allow them or some of them perhaps to participate in the new dispensation. So if we contrast that time then and we fast forward to 2018, when they were in a much stronger position in control of large sections of the country, and the US sits down to negotiate directly with the Taliban in Doha without the Afghan government, they eventually sign an agreement in February 2020, paving the way for US withdrawal. And then there are intra-Afghan talks between the government and the Taliban. Although you weren't formally involved in that process, I imagine you must have taken a keen interest given your history there. How did you perceive those negotiations? Of course, you know, the Afghan government and practically everybody who is not close to the Taliban in Afghanistan were very disturbed by the fact that the Americans were discussing with the Taliban alone, nobody else on the Afghan side was associated with those uh, negotiations. So that was, if you like, the seeds of the problems people of Afghanistan are living through these days. The agreement really says, we Americans are leaving, and we are leaving on the 1st of May next year. 
and now please please negotiate with others in Afghanistan that's uh, that was not the best beginning of uh, the negotiation because they had given away their leverage or they have given away the leverage the government had a huge part of uh, the leverage the government had and if we look at the situation now and the Taliban takeover of the country the events of early August and September 2021, some of our listeners, I think, will have been disheartened, uh, to say the least, of the images of women living in fear as the, as the Taliban marched into the major cities. You know, what's the lesson of this episode in Afghan history about the inclusion of women? Of course, now that they have won, they'll see, you know, we are, we are governing on behalf of the entire Afghan people. But I'm sure they know that this is not true, that there are a lot of Afghans who do not support them, who do not share their views. But these people are Afghans. They have got to have a say. They have got to listen to them. If they don't, I think they and the region and the rest of the world are in for a lot of bad surprises and not a very long way from now. So it seems that your message to the Taliban is one of inclusion. Absolutely. Without inclusion, then it is instability and conflict. Uh, the message also uh, goes to their neighbors, because again, tradition and past and so on shows that for peace to take root in Afghanistan, it has to be supported at the same time by all its neighbors. And I will venture to name the principal countries, Pakistan, Iran, and India. These three countries have got to understand and accept together at the same time that peace in Afghanistan is better for each one of them than war. In terms of your message to the international community and having worked in Afghanistan over 20 years ago when the world refuse to recognize the Taliban. What do you make of the debate today on the conditions that some governments are insisting need to be fulfilled before they recognize the Taliban? Recognition or not, you have got to keep talking to the Taliban. Anybody who wants to do something in or about Afghanistan wouldn't be serious if they didn't talk to the Taliban, for God's sake. They are the only force that exists now in the country. Whether you want to vaccinate kids or give food or shelter or water, how can you do it if you don't talk to the Taliban? Let's move from Afghanistan to Syria. I want to take you back to 2012, when Kofi Annan resigns as UN envoy in utter frustration, and you accept the post of UN and Arab League representative. You've called this mission nearly impossible. Yeah. Why did you take it on? When the job was offered to Kofi Annan, former Secretary General of the United Nations, by his successor, Ban Ki-moon, Kofi is great for consulting very widely. I was one of the people he called and asked, you know, I have been offered this job. What do you think should I do? And I told Kofi, you should accept. And he said, do you think that we can really get somewhere in this situation? 
I told him, I don't think you will be able to get, but you can't say no. Mm. You know, these are jobs that people like you cannot uh, say no to. So it's difficult having given that advice than to say, no, no, not for me. Let me put it this way. The United Nations cannot not be there. It has to be there. I believe in the United Nations. I respect the United Nations. I think I have a fair idea of their shortcomings, but still, they are the best organization we have. We have no other. So that's why I went with my eyes open, knowing that it is extremely difficult. I knew a little bit of what kind of regime existed in Syria, and I knew how difficult it was going to be. And the context at the time, in November 2012, the opposition Syrian National Coalition is formed. The following January, President Assad proposes a new constitution, which is rejected. And there's also reports of chemical weapons attacks on several Damascus suburbs. You know, and at that time, many Western states were convinced that Assad had to go in order for there to be a possible resolution to the conflict in Syria. And of course, in the long run, this hasn't happened. Do you think that the positions of these Western states were a hindrance to the mediation process? Let me put it in a, in a much simpler way. Foreign intervention is always, always problematic. But at times, it is uh, clearly uh, negative. And in Syria in those days, the countries that were interfering in one way or another, supporting the government like the Russians and the Iranians were doing, or supporting the opposition like a lot of other countries were doing, all of them had little time for the Syrian people. They were not interested in Syria. Syria all of a sudden became a playground for these countries, big and small, to further their national narrow interest. And you cannot possibly really pursue national interests of 20 countries at the same time, in the same place. So the ingredients to help the Syrian people find peace again were not there. I stayed on that job two years. As a matter of fact, I had given up after one year. Mm. After one year, I, the only thing I was telling Ban Ki-moon and everybody else is that, please let me go. After one year, it was clear that uh, the ingredients for, for making peace that would be beneficial to the Syrian people was not there. Mm. And it hasn't been there all the years after. Why did you feel that at that point in your tenure in Syria that there was essentially nothing to be done? Talk me through your efforts as a mediator at that time to try to bridge those differences. The means of the mediator himself or herself are very limited. And you need a lot of help from every side to really move forward. So let me give you an example of circumstances that make it practically impossible for you to get anywhere. We managed to get the Russians and the Americans to sit down with us, the United Nations in Geneva, and we had several meetings. And Kerry went at some stage in 2013. This was John Kerry, the US Secretary of State at the time. He went to Moscow and had full-fledged communique between Russia and the United States saying that they were going to cooperate, 
to help the peace in Syria. So with a lot of difficulties, we ended up having at the end of 2013 in Switzerland a big conference on Syria. The idea was that for it to be the beginning of negotiations between the Syrian parties. Now, when you get a conference of that sort, and after a lot, a lot, a lot of toing and froing, at the last minute, you decide to withdraw the invitation from Iran. You don't need to, to love Iran or, or support their policy. But if you have an international conference about Syria, Iran has to be there. That's why you know, we had two sets of meetings in Geneva between the Syrian opposition and the Syrian government with myself presiding. And it got us absolutely nowhere, and I stopped them. The Russians mainly, but also the Americans were begging me to continue. I said, no, you know, I cannot continue. It's ridiculous. That's really insulting the United Nations. Yes. Continuing a kind of shadow boxing that is totally useless. And what I told them is that, you know, please go back. And the UN is here. When you think that you are ready to discuss seriously, just let us know and we can start. Was that the moment yeah. when you decided, you know, this is this That's, is it for me? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to ask you about your interactions with the Syrians themselves. Mm. You know, we had the emergence of the Syrian National Coalition at the mm. time. And, of course, the, the government led by President Assad, whose father you knew. Very well. So how did that help you or not in your meetings with him? I don't think it helped me very much. <laughs> Why do you yeah. say that? Because these these are power plays. So the fact that you have known them or had some nice recollections of the past doesn't really make much of a difference. Mm. I think if you know want to speak about Syria, then a very very important point to remember is for the opposition. Don't forget that this was not. A, a movement that decided one day to start a revolution or a liberation war or, or something. These spontaneous movements, when people really take to the streets without any organization behind them, it's very beautiful to watch, They're very refreshing, and the slogans are beautiful and so on. The problem with the spontaneous movement is that they are extremely difficult to organize themselves to win and even more difficult after they win, if they do win. And that is what Syria faced. So what was your strategy then, say in your first meeting with President Assad? You know, what were you telling him at the time, witnessing what was happening on the streets? The country is in trouble and you need to talk to your people, to everybody. You have got also to take into consideration what is happening around you in the region. Mm. Uh, you've got to talk to your neighbors. That is what I was saying to him and to his neighbors. And, uh, and how did he react when you said those things? Extremely politely. I think we had perhaps one difficult meeting, but otherwise it was civilized. But at no moment did I feel that we were getting anywhere close to the beginning of a process. Let me say that President Bashar al-Assad 
has absolute power in Syria. I don't think he would object to me saying that. And as such, he's more used to giving orders than discussing what decisions he may or may not take. And you see, I think this is a big problem for the mediator. Did you wish you had levers that you could pull to change the kind of power dynamic? No, no, no. I think what you need really is to convince people that you are not talking on behalf of their enemies and you are not trying to take away from them something that they had refused to give to anybody else. This is why, you know, you need to build confidence. And people have got to understand that they have something to gain. If they think that they are winning without you, why should they even listen to you? So a mediator's work in situations like this have possibilities when there is a stalemate. And the parties understand that. So they will be looking for what can they get that is not the maximum. I think Bashar al-Assad never stopped thinking that he can have the entire cake. I'd like to end with some concluding thoughts, starting with Iraq, you know, where you assume your post as the Secretary General's special representative following a grave attack on the UN in 2003 when a truck bomb crashed into the mission's headquarters, killing 22 people, including your predecessor, Sergio Vieira de Mello. You know, there were a lot of sensitivity surrounding the mission from the start. Should the UN even have gone into Iraq? In hindsight, probably not. Kofi Annan, when he was told what was the decision he regretted most, he said it was sending Sergio to Iraq in uh, 2003. Now, it's extremely clear that the UN had no business in 2003 in Iraq. The United States had gone in with Britain and invaded the country against the wish of the United Nations. So why, why a few months later, they want the UN there? But in January 2004, when they came and asked, and I went, it's a different situation. Then the Americans had come to the United Nations in January with the Iraqi government they had put together in place and said the following, we now want to restore Iraqi sovereignty and we cannot do it without the UN help. Again, I thought that if the question is to try, even if you don't succeed, helping a country regain its sovereignty the United Nations cannot say no, and you, I mean, meaning myself, cannot say no. That's why I accepted to go. You know, we've talked a lot today about failure more than success, uh, but I want to also ask about those rare successes. Can you tell me about a moment when you felt hope and optimism in your work? In Afghanistan, in September 1998, the Taliban swept over the north and conquered most of the country, and then in Mazar-Sharif, killed nine diplomats in the Iranian consulate and arrested about 120 Iranians, mostly truck drivers. Iran massed 200,000 soldiers and was threatening to invade Afghanistan. And the president of Iran came to Kofi Annan and told him, please help us avoid war. And then we negotiated and got 
all the, the Iranians out mm. and the bodies of their people who were slain in our, uh, back to Iran. And we avoided the war. Mm. Uh, so the feeling of having participated a little bit in avoiding a war is a lot of satisfaction. Now, a sequel to that, that much later I learned that actually the interpreter had had a lot to do with that success. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, a young Afghan who was, who was translating for Mullah Muhammad Omar, I learned later that he had changed of some of the things I have said. Really? Yeah. So, you know, he probably is more responsible for that success than I was. This is why humility is terribly important to have when you are mediating. You know, what advice would you give to younger mediators who might feel daunted by wars that feel impossible to end? One, no matter how much you think you know, you actually don't know enough. And no matter how much more you learn, it is still not enough. It is never enough. Therefore, you need to keep your eyes and ears open and accept correction to what you think are simple truths or complicated truths. So you don't know enough. That is one thing. The other thing is respect the people you deal with. You don't need to love them or agree with them. But you have got to genuinely respect them and make them feel that you are respecting them. You will not avoid all mistakes. You will make mistakes. But you will avoid a few traps that are avoidable. Well, on that note, there we must end. Lakta Brahimi, thank you so much for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. Thank you very much indeed for having me. It was a pleasure. And there we end this edition of The Mediator Studio. To get new episodes as soon as they're released, make sure you subscribe. The Mediator Studio team loves hearing your feedback and suggestions. If you have a moment, please fill in our short listener survey. You can find the link on our website. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold, and the show is produced by Christopher Gunnis. Research for this episode was done by Evie Krasner and Jason Nemirovsky. Neither peacemaking nor podcasts happen without lots of work behind the scenes. My thanks go to our whole production team in Geneva and Oslo. I do hope that you'll join us for the next episode of The Mediator Studio. Until then, that's all from me, Adam Cooper. Thank you for listening. All right. Thank you all for listening. And thank you to the good folks at The Mediator's Studio for advertising with the podcast. And again, if you are a subscriber to the Global Dispatches podcast, you will no doubt appreciate The Mediator's Studio. So do subscribe to that show wherever you find podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.